of the 80s and beyond. Uh, this episode is the final one of 1981. I know it's been a long journey. We've, there's a lot of great horror films and thrillers in 1981. I'm your host, Michael, and Kersey's on the other side. Hey, how's it going? Okay, so I went through this list, and uh, a lot of these I didn't get to see or I've seen before. Um, there's Michael Crichton's Looker, which is just a weirdo movie. Uh, has so much potential, but I think it's better fit for trash cinema when it finally returns. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard Possession with Sam Neill is fantastic. Can't find it anywhere. Uh, oh. Dead and Buried was really good, but I thought it was just a little too slow for you. Um, it, 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 it's like muddy in its uh, execution. It's still good, though. Um, uh, uh, Fulci's The Beyond was uh, very much like trash cinema quality. Graduation Day, The Burning... Um, Evil Speak, I really wanted to do, and it was actually 1982, so it'll be coming up in the next run of movies. Uh, Fear No Evil is one of those almost. You should watch it, though, out of curiosity. It's in my voodoo. It's a demon possession revenge high school movie. Oh, interesting. Uh, Strange Behavior is really interesting. It's about manipulating kids with computer chips, but I think they did it better later in uh, uh, Disturbing Behavior. Um, just Before Dawn is a redneck hillbilly movie, which is kind of scary, but it just I think it's more fit for trash cinema. A lot of these are just meant for trash cinema, or they're just slow. We're trying to pick kind of, kind of the cream of the crop of the horror movies that came out during these years, because honestly, we get stuck on 1981 forever. But we're almost ready to move on to 1982, but we have one more episode to go. And what are we discussing on this episode, Kersey? Uh You're going to have to remind me. It's actually been a few days. <laughs> Okay. It's... God, I, 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 like the the one with uh, God, no, I can't even. It's okay. It's no, okay. I, I throw there a lot of movies at me. I'm so tired. It's uh, this time we're doing cop thrillers and uh, different genres technically, but uh, both of them have elements of horror in them. Uh, thrillers. Uh, one is Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone and Billy Dee Williams and Rudger Hauer being introduced to American audiences. And the sci-fi western kind of cop movie called Outland with Sean Connery. Okay, I was going to say Outlander, but I, I, I was like, I, no, I don't think No, Outlander right. is the one with Jim Caviezel where he fights a dragon from outer space. <laughs> okay, I don't think I've seen that one, but now I really want to watch it. It's good. I actually own it. It's it's one of the only few like mainstream movies that he did before he decided everything had to be religious. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. All right, so our first movie is going to be Nighthawks, kind of the forgotten Stallone movie because it's not tied to a franchise. It's not one of his big budget epic movies. This is before he really became an A-lister. Yes, he had Rocky 1 and 2, but other than that, he was struggling hard to get another hit under his belt so he could identify himself other than one character. And it's the year before Rambo, and it's this slick, neon, disco-influenced... I can tell there's cocaine all over this movie. Um, Yeah. And Nighthawks is the introduction of Rudger Howard to American audiences, and I think it's a really interesting movie. Maybe Stallone isn't the best for it, but I think it's one of his best performances. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that one. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I think especially nowadays, with with how politics is going, uh, this this is a little bit the cop propaganda, kind of. Um, I mean, the the kind of the, the message of the movie is you should just kill people on sight. Uh, if you think they're guilty, but if, if, you know, take take that aside and have, you just if you enjoy it as a thriller, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, the uh, it's it's funny the thrillers you see before really action 
really influenced or or softcore porn. That's the way thrillers went in the late '80s. Is they either treat them like action movies or they treat them like, hey, this should play on HBO like at midnight constantly. <laughs> and it's about an international terrorist who is on the run and he comes to America after having plastic surgery. And there's a special group put together of cops in New York who are supposed to track him down. They only barely know the like. Trying to say what he looks like is hard because they have his eyes, and that's about the only thing that cha- stays the same. You know, his his bone structure has even been altered. But Stallone just stumbles upon him, and I think in the best scene in the whole movie is where they're in this disco nightclub, whatever, and he they're they're looking through like a hundred fifty thousand people, it seems. And he just slowly pins down this guy, and they have one hell of a sequence chasing through New York. Yeah, that was definitely the best part of the movie. I, I think that this movie definitely, what it does well is it takes sort of a, a a thrilling concept of chasing down a terrorist in New York, but does it in a way that is more, I don't want to say necessarily realistic, but it kind of feels that way. It's definitely... Uh, the, the the tone is very somber, almost I would say, rather than exciting. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting spin on it. Well, the way they film it, the way it's treated, is as if it was almost a slasher. Yes, that's what I think puts it in a different category. In especially, fact, especially the end. Especially yeah. The end. In fact, the uh, there was a movie in the 1980s called Terror in the Isles, and Universal Studios put together clips from all of their great horror movies around that time. To show off, because this is uh, this is when horror was really hitting its peak, and they thought it would help video sales. But I believe it was actually in theaters, hosted by Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen, and they showed like you know uh, American Werewolf in London and, and, and a lot of like uh, the classic horror stuff. But this movie, Nighthawks, they used two or three clips in the film, and it's just so weird because technically it is not sold as a horror movie; it's sold as a you know an international cop thriller, kind of like French Connection. So it's kind of weird that they would throw it into a whole bunch of other horror movies. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I wouldn't. The only, I can't. The only. I'm trying to think of like what scenes they would take. I can. I think maybe two, which would be the the main character, you know, uh, Stallone's um, cop buddy getting his face slashed up. Yeah, that was one of them. Yeah, obviously, and then probably the end, right? Uh, yes, that one, and then they had the scene where they're on the lift and he's holding them hostage. That was also another scene that was used. Oh well, I mean, like what, uh, like what part though? It's like a, it's more of like a tense situation. Yeah, I, it's, I just remember. I think they showed a clip where he was like throwing somebody off, whatever. It was a short one, but I just oh, remember that was so oh. strange that this movie was thrown in with the rest of those. And uh, it, it did okay at the time, but like I said, it didn't really create much for Stallone until the next year when he did First Blood. But I really would have been interesting if this had been the big hit and not Rambo. So instead of doing these big epic action films, he started doing more like lower budget but grimier character based thrillers. I mean, he definitely would have been able to work on his acting more because I think in this movie specifically, he does show off a range of acting skills that he doesn't really show in other movies. Yeah, he's a little more, uh, I would say, less monosyllabic. <laughs> less, let's say less. Yeah. He, he seems like he has a lot on his mind. What I like, though, is uh, Billy Dee Williams is the second, like, his partner. And you think what they do, the curse of every time they add a black guy to a horror movie, they always kill them. And, and that's kind of what you think happens. Yeah, that is what you expect in this movie. But there's a thing where he's like, fuck you, I'm still in this fight. And he is the negotiator. He's the talker. He's the guy who gets him through it. Whereas Stallone is more the action guy. And I like the balance between the two. 
Yeah, and there's this great uh, hospital sequence that takes place afterwards, which I, you're going to have to remind me a little bit, but I, I think like the, the crux of that whole conversation was that he was trying to get him to basically be to, to stay on as like part of trying to find this guy, and he was trying to quit, or he was still saying, like, I'm not going to shoot him on sight for you. Right. It, it's just not something that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, and Rudger Hauer, good lord, if there's a movie to introduce him with, everybody thinks it's Blade Runner, but it's this. And he just pins down this. He's like, he even says, I want to be beautiful. Now, he looks, there's something very exotic about Rudger Hauer. No one else really looks like him. He's beautiful, but at the same time, kind of terrifying. He's such an intense look. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like a modern day example of probably want to give someone like adam driver a little bit maybe know. maybe uh uh who's bond again uh, daniel craig kind of has that um uncomfortable but he's supposed to be like you know the main handsome guy but there's something off mm-hmm. yeah uh he yeah Rutger is excellent in in this movie i think that he especially most people think of him nowadays as like the the insane crazy guy it's serial killer in, in a movie but i mean in this one even though he is that role he is still a very interesting, very calm, under-pressure character, which right. is unusual for him. Yeah, and, and the, the last scene is kind of a showstopper. It seems silly. When I saw it the first time, it seems silly when you see it out of context. It's still a yes. little silly. But if you don't know the first sequence where Stallone is undercover, you're not going to get the final sequence. Because I only saw the final sequence in, that, in, in uh, Terror in the Isles, and I was like, what? I don't understand how you could fall for that. Yeah, that's not one you, you can really <laughs> take out of context. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a really good movie. The second one that we're going to discuss is Outland. Uh, Sean Connery, this is when his career was kind of starting to crumble. And uh, the 80s... Oh, early really? 90s. Really? I couldn't tell. <laughs> uh, this is, what, almost a decade after Bond, and he had a hit here and there. Most of them were just weird experiments, like Zardoz. Um Seriously, walking around in a diaper, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but this is basically high noon in outer space from an excellent director named Peter Hyams. And uh, basically he's a new sheriff in town and everything is falling apart and it's corrupt. And they're working these people to death by pumping them full of drugs. And some of them go insane and kill people or kill themselves. And he has to figure out what is going on. Have we mentioned that this movie takes place in space? Because that is kind of important. Oh, yeah, I probably should have said that. High noon in outer space is what I should have said. <laughs> Maybe you did say that, I don't know. But it is an interesting idea, which at first kind of seems like, well, this is the same movie I would see anywhere else. It's like the space theme doesn't change anything about it, but it does help at the end uh, when he's kind of being hunted down because the, the idea is that being in a space station is that he's isolated from the outside world. He can't get help. Right. And, and the fact that everybody in charge, besides himself, is pretty much bought off. Exactly, yeah. It's uh, it's shot, not like Star Wars. Everybody was shooting space movies like Star Wars, but Peter Hyam shoots this like the way Alien was done. So it is a thriller in space, even though it is also a cop, western, space, <laughs> drug <laughs> movie. I don't know how you describe it, but um, what did you think of the film? Uh, I I would say that I did not like the uh the first like 10 15 minutes because what i thought it was going to do was just be another like badass cop on the force busting drug dealers 
but it really changed because there it was this really long sequence of him investigating just one person's death and just all of the emotional sort of baggage that comes with that, not only from his home, but from the his um, the guy who died his like wife had left behind, and like they made sure to show all of that, yeah. and so it became much more serious and much more drama. Well, and he's scared. He's legitimately scared. He's trying to get yes. people to help him, but they know that there's no way they're going to side against the, the basically the guy who's running everything, the one who's getting them paid. They're not going to go against him because hell, they could be just jettisoned right out into space. And he has to face off against these snipers inside the building by himself, which is crazy because you're in outer space and there's actual bullets. There's not another way to kill. <laughs> Seems like a terrible yeah. idea. Uh, and the, it gets so desperate that he just kind of like walks into the cafeteria just asking random people for help. Yeah. It's like there's nobody. And I think it's a really different performance from Sean Connery than you expect because in our heads, he can handle anything. That's the way his whole career has basically been, especially because of the James Bond movies. He doesn't need anybody's help. But this one, there's there's a there's a sweating, there's a desperation. He's on the run. Yeah, he gets shot. Like he he it, there's there's a sense of desperation to his character. Yeah, and his partner is killed uh, in a gruesome fashion, and he all he has help is from this like uh, wise cracking old lady who won't take any shit from anybody. Yeah, I, I was kind of I couldn't really remember, and you have to remind me here but why did she decide to help him anyway it seemed like not really her fight i don't know it's just maybe she was just sick of it i i watched i was ready for this um too early i watched this a couple months ago i kind of forgot but it feels like she was the one that was just sick and tired of seeing all the bullshit and she hated peter boyle's character who's the main villain um god what a sleaze that guy is one intimidating beefy man it's like look just shut the fuck up and look away and take your money that's it that's all you have to do I can't do that. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're going to take care of this for for you. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I was going to have you watch a third movie because this episode's a little shorter than I, it should have been, but I didn't know if you had the time. There's a great thriller called Sharky's Machine with uh, Burt Reynolds, and it has also kind of like horror elements. It has a guy who has to do so much coke and is screaming intensely before he shoots someone in the face with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> that, that does sound awesome yeah, it's a pretty good movie and the stunts are amazing the first half hour the last half hour are truly amazing the middle part's a little slow but um so I apologize this episode is a little bit shorter than usual but is there anything else you want to say before we go um I don't know the only thing are just kind of minor critiques that I could give um of uh Outland that was it Outland right right keep saying Outlander but Outland uh I think that the sort of opening crawl sort of thing that they do where they just kind of describe everything that's in the ship with, uh, was kind of pointless because none of it came back. I don't know. There's just like there's just minor criticisms here and there but like both of these are pretty solid movies yeah. which is why we don't really have anything to say. The, the, I will say this. The labyrinth chase sequence in Outland is so well done. It's like <laughs> it was like parkour before parkour. <laughs> they even go into some space parkour. Yeah, it's the, the he. If you haven't seen the movie, they're running through like the corridors of what do you call it, where everybody lives, and there's just fucking ladders and stairs and pipes and everything. They're just going so fast, and I just can't believe he shot it so well. And then when he shoots the explosion of the head, you, you know what the part where the oxygen gets in, they, their head expands. Yeah, of that looks. I know that. That looks so bad. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was a it was a foam head, but it was a cool scene. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that is it for this episode. We're going to be jumping into 1982, everybody. And we're going to be launching oh God, so with maybe the greatest horror movie of all time, maybe The Thing.
Mm-hmm. And competing against it in the summer of 1982, Poltergeist. This is going to be good. So I apologize ahead of time because I'm probably going, instead of talking about The Thing so much because it's a horror masterpiece that I think everyone understands, I'm going to be probably talking a lot about The Thing kind of remake slash prequel. Um, because I just I like need to analyze that movie from from this lens to kind of explain why it was so terrible. Okay. You know what? We'll 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 get we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I'll try to limit how much I say. Okay. I All have right. some unresolved issues. <laughs> well, I think everybody has unresolved issues, including the filmmaker who uh, special effects were taken away and replaced by CGI. Yeah, but that wouldn't have saved it. Maybe not. It was it was just bad from this. There's some stuff I like, but yeah, overall I can do just the 1982 version, and that is what's coming up on next. Uh, check us out on Facebook under Video Night Podcast. You'll find no, we're not not Video Night Podcast. This isn't Trash Cinema anymore. I'm sorry. Under Hit Rewind, we'll get back to Trash Cinema someday, and uh, soon we're gonna be. I mean, we're headed into the 80s. We're gonna start getting some kung fu in here, and I count those as thrillers too. <laughs> yeah. And what's great about this is we can probably send these episodes out a little sooner than how long this one took, uh, because I am much more familiar with this era. Like, we could literally just do this next episode now, and it wouldn't miss a beat. Wow, I have not watched Poltergeist in forever, so I apologize. I need to watch it before we record. Yeah, go for it. All right, so we'll be back as soon as we can, and uh, have a good night. All right, see you guys. Hey everybody, it is a segment we like to call The Scholars of Sketch, where we discuss the uh, basically all sketch shows that started with 1975's debut of Saturday Night Live and all of its competition through time. I'm your host, Michael, and Tony's on the other side with me. Well, not with me, he's over there. Hey-o. He can't be in two different places, it's not like a hologram. But um, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit, we're in 1987 on the show right now. And you and I discussed doing the next run of SNL, but I kind of want to break it up. Plus, the next run goes from like 87 to 90, because uh, that's that solid cast where they start adding all these other people. So, in the meantime, we are going to be discussing uh, Kids in the Hall, um, probably my favorite sketch show of all time. Yeah, agreed. Same here. I mean, I remember watching this as, as you know, a young teen. And me and my me and my friends just loved it. We would quote it all the time, constantly quoting it. You know, my friends at HBO, so they would let me come over and watch. And one friend, um, uh, he uh, he made some VHS, VHS tapes for me to watch. I didn't have HBO. And then when then when we moved to CBS, he made some dish. Even though I could have watched, it, I just never stayed up late enough to do it. Yeah. He always he recorded some for me to watch then too. So, but yeah, we'd always we would, we would always constantly quote that more more so than SNL. Got it for some reason. Uh, Kids in the Hall just seemed more accessible to us. It seemed like more—I don't know—it seemed like it was chillier and goofier, and more for like a young, like a young teenager's sensibilities, you know. Yeah, and it's more innocent and sweeter, and it's not—it's—it's it's very timeless. I mean, I just gave the set to my mom now, and she says it's just like watching friends hang out. It's not about whatever's going on in pop culture or in politics at the time, so it—it it doesn't it doesn't yeah, get very dated. No, very true. I was, yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. It, it's it's not dated at all. You could you wouldn't what I mean even even the um, the outfits aren't super like era specific. You could just, you could watch the show and not I really be a hundred percent certain this was takes place in maybe the early two thousands, mid two thousands, early nineties. You, you'd have a hard, you'd be hard pressed to nail down the exact you know the exact era that this uh, was was filmed because you're not like you know I mean possibly if somebody had recently died you know what I mean like say. 
you know, the Queen or something, right. or, or some, something of like that, or, or like a figure they're, they're, they're referencing. But besides that, you, you really wouldn't have a clue to, like, when, you know, when, uh, when said show was uh, supposed to be taking place in. The, uh, the luxury for a lot of our generation isn't that we saw it on HBO, it's the fact that HBO owned part of Comedy Central. And, you know, in order to fill their schedule, they showed tons of stand-up from, you know, the specials that they had, but they also had kids in the hall, and that's how I would watch right. it. I, I, I got cable, I want to say spring of 92, and uh, they would just play it like four times a day, and I was just absolutely in love with it. I would watch the same episode more than once a day. Yeah, see, I was reintroduced to it when it, when it came on Comedy Central, and then I saw, you know, it's hard to watch every episode, you know what I mean? Uh, especially back then, now it's so easy for you to like binge something or stream something and watch, you know, every, every conceivable episode. Back then, you know, if you missed it, you missed it. So it really gave you a chance to watch some of the episodes you missed, you know, some of the sketches you missed out on, you know, and kind of like like you know, fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, and it's it's the nature of being kind of exotic in a way because a lot of these sketch shows had an identity based on where they were set. They had uh, at the time we had SNL courses full on New York. We would have shows in and out of L.A. Uh, did you ever see Almost Live, which they almost they always played on uh, Comedy Central? Wait, wait, what, what's it called again? Almost Live. That's the one that was out of Seattle. No, I never saw that one. Oh, that one's going to come up in the show. That was on for years, a very long time, but it was, it was Seattle-specific. But for about two years, Comedy Central bought the rights and would air it and had a lot of like the early grunge stuff. So that had its identity. But like SCTV... Uh, Kids in the Holocaust was shot in Canada and it has that essence to it except it's not it's saying it's not as weird as SETV is odd if you consider how you would describe some of these sketches but you know we discussed SETV yeah. was like this cryptic universe where everything was weaved in and out of it you know and, and Kids in the Hall wasn't like that it was very accessible no yeah and they didn't have like the um, they would reintroduce characters like uh in certain sketches, but it wasn't like the same kind of uh, serial plot line that had to follow some kind of weird continuity with this fictional town and uh, like SCTV did, you know? Right. Because well, they, they were adhering to, they were adhering to the to the, uh, the gimmick that this was a TV station that you're watching. You're watching this, you know what I mean? So you're watching this alternate universe where this alternate, you know, where this town exists and these, you know, larger than life uh, fictional characters exist in this, you know, strange universe that also has, you know, reality-based people when they're doing a press. It was, you know, it was, it was like a weird drugged-out fever dream. It was, yeah, it was yeah, good, yeah. but it's, it's definitely... It's Whereas, more, uh, yeah, Kids in the Hall felt well, like it was just all these weirdos in um, a town that you just knew, like an, uh, an all-American town, like The Simpsons. It had that kind of formula where everybody uh, could recognize those types in that town. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're all they're all from the suburbs, uh, you know. Bruce and um, I think uh, Bruce and Kevin uh, McDonald, I believe, are um, from uh, Calgary, and um, uh, what's it called, Dave and uh, uh, McKinney. I guess Scott Thompson from the Toronto area. But they're all, they're all they all grew up in the burbs. So they all have like suburban sensibility. They're all like you know, just like goofy, fun-loving kids who just like you know, just like to you know poke fun at each other goof around basically right yeah Yeah. it's um 
so I was reading the backstory on this. I, I was reading Bruce McCullough's book in preparation for this, and basically they had uh, been in like um, a kind of an unformed sketch team, you know, like improv group, and they were kind of trying to find the right, you know, the the collaborations that would work for them. And there was a lot more people in the cast at the time, but then uh, he, he was offered a job on SNL for the I want to say eighty five, eighty six season. And that would put a temporary pause on the group, but it didn't work out. He didn't like the way that it was run. So then he came back to Canada, and that's where they slowly started to whittle away the people that were unnecessary for the group and the ones who were more committed. And that's how we end up with our locked group like two years later and Lauren Michaels giving them another chance and getting on HBO and CBC. Yeah, so what I what I read um, that like uh, which I didn't know was the like so Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney I said Kevin McDonald, but Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney they were uh, they're already working together as a duo doing stuff in Calgary performing as a group called the Audience right yeah and Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald they're performing around Toronto uh, along with a guy named Luciano uh, Casimiri as the kids in the hall so they so uh, Dave Foley and McDonald were performing with another guy as the kids in the hall and then. In 1984, both of these guys met up in Toronto, and then again, then all together began performing uh, as you know the four of them, with other rotating uh, you know uh, cast members, including the, uh, Paul Bellini for for a bit, and then Scott Thompson. He was invited to join them in uh, in January of 1985 as the fifth member, uh, making the final complete formation. But I heard um, I heard an interview with them, and uh, basically they were doing some kind of uh, on stage appearance and for whatever reason they had like like mini chocolate donuts taped to the bottom of the seats <laughs> and, and for what I can't remember they, they don't even remember the you know the genesis of the bit but they're like hey if you look under your seat there's chocolate donuts under there and then that was just supposed to be it but then like Scott Thompson was throwing donuts at them the whole time he's like he's like I, he's like, I don't believe we, we we invited this guy to be like you know uh, you know with us and he ended up like ended up heckling us you know, halfway through, he's like, like, I didn't understand. I thought this was great. I, I love these guys. They're, they're giving me donuts to throw them on their show. This is totally interactive. This is awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so, such an oddball. <laughs> like yeah. this, we we got we to take this guy on. This guy is out of his mind. The, uh, the set from Mill Creek that was just put out has not only the, uh, the continuation, uh, Death Comes to Town. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also um, has the original yeah, pilot. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Death Comes to Town. That's what it was, yeah. The original pilot was that it was going to be a one-hour show, and it does not work in a one-hour format in any way whatsoever. It's it's just so clumsy. You need it in a half-hour concept. Yeah, it was a, was a CBC mini, miniseries that, uh, in 2010. It ran from January 12th to March 16th in 2010. I, I don't recall even hearing of it back, back in 2010. Yeah, I stumbled across it, but uh, and apparently they're going to be coming back for another series, which has been delayed because of COVID, and um, over on Amazon. I don't know if it's going to be a full run, but I hope it holds up better than the uh, Mr. Show reunion that was on Netflix, because that was not good. That, it, it had its moments, but by and large, it wasn't as good as it was previously. But there, there were a few funny sketches uh, in there, but yeah, but... but for the most part, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was they were far, uh, apart for too long. Whereas the Kids of Hall guys, they've always continued. They'll do their live shows. Of course, they, they did the movie and the, the miniseries. They, so they keep in touch. Yeah, I mean, they basically never never stopped. They did break up for a short period, not not exactly, after the movie kind of bombed. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, you know, um, 
I mean, like monetarily, it was you know, it, 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 you know, the network lost money, but uh, they really down on themselves. They just stopped forming together for for a bit for a while. And then they, you know, and then of course, you know, Dave had a he he had a sitcom he was doing and you know, yeah, and the movies had some other pots, but but I didn't realize that um, Bruce uh, McCullough and um, Dave were on a sh- like uh, I guess before the show started, uh, before Kids in the Hall started. They were in a show called Anna and the Green Gables. Oh, I, mean, I guess it must be a. You say that like you don't know show. what this is. Do you not know what Anna Green Gables is? No. You, I'm sorry, you don't have. Did you have a sister? No. Okay. <laughs> Only child. That's... I, I, I mean, okay. I had a stepsister I met later. Okay. Dad, I have a sister. Later. All sisters know Anna Green Gables, and I watched it with her because um, we had seen Silver Bullet. And we loved it, and my sister found out that she was going to be in a rerun of this series on PBS called Anna Green Gables, and I've seen it maybe ten times. It's really, really fucking good. Yes, I remember Bruce being in there, but I didn't remember Mark being in there. No, it says uh, Bruce, Bruce and Dave. Bruce and oh, Mark. Dave. Okay, yeah. I really love it. It's just about this like teenager who's really tenacious and won't take shit from anybody in like the 1800s. It's like if it was Little House on the Prairie with like Attitude. Okay. We ate that shit up when I was a kid. So, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I was just unaware. See, I, you know, I, I didn't like consume like I watched a lot of TV, but I didn't have like access to all the channels. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was like a lot of VHS, uh, you know, uh, you know UHS and um, PBS. You know, yeah, most kids channel, avoided PBS like a plague. Main once channel. Old enough. Well, so like so like um so like so before uh, Kids in the Hall officially kicked off. Um, you know, uh, you know, they did break up for for bits doing their um, their on stage show, and then of course, you know, everybody knows the SNL scouts. They invited uh, Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough to write uh, for SNL for a bit, and then I, this is another thing I, I wasn't aware of. Foley he made uh, he made his movie debut in a poorly received movie called High Stakes. Have you ever seen High Stakes? Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was called Pizza Man, or maybe I think of the one with Bill Maher. But I remember there was a where he was the lead, and it played on Comedy Central for a little bit when I first started watching it. But I never got to got around to watching the movie. But it was called High Stakes. I mean, I mean, it, it, it could have alternate uh, titles in different markets. I'm not sure, but this is this is just what I read. And um, and then at the same time, uh, you know, uh, Scott Thompson and. Uh, um, and uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Ken McDonald. They were working at uh, on the Second City uh, touring. So, but then they all reunited back in 1986 and just started touring again. So, like in a brief hiatus, where they kind of like were together, <laughs> they split soon after to do a little side projects. And yeah. Then, you know, brief and then like for briefly then reunited in 1986 before. And they just it it took a couple tries, but I really thought that it uh, worked really well immediately. The very first uh, episode they debuted, it's already rock solid. They know what their characters are. They know what tone they're trying to strike, and um, it it just held so well for so many years. And it's funny how you see how they did pair up though, because it's always Kevin and Dave, and then always Mark and Bruce, and then Scott was usually always by himself. And it, that was just their strongest right. teamwork. And um, yes, they were all intertwined. But I really, as I've gotten older, I have really enjoyed Scott Thompson's work, especially as Buddy Cole. His monologues fucking kill me. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, when we were younger, maybe it was a little, maybe a little too young to get some of his, uh, some of his satire, but, you know, as we, uh, definitely as you get older, you, you definitely have a newfound appreciation for, for, for what he brought to the show, for sure. Yeah. And, and some of the characters, I think, um, I think I want to say Mark McKinney took the chicken lady over to SNL, but I think that's the only one that went over to another medium. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't. I don't remember seeing. Um, I don't remember seeing the chicken lady on SNL. Maybe I've just I, I know that. he he started as a regular, then he did, then he came back in the nineties as a cast member. Yeah. So I don't remember him bringing any of his characters with. Okay. I, I For some reason, I thought that was sure. the one. Yeah, he lasted what two seasons on SNL while Bruce was just a writer. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. like in '97, I think he decided he'd had enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess he was just starting to age himself out. He was probably one of the older cast members at that point. Yeah, see that. There's only so many ideas you can probably come with, up with too. With sketch comedy, it's gotta it's gotta be rough because, um, one way or another, unless you're making it all about what's going on in the world right now, it really seems like you would burn out of characters that you would create. Well, I mean, Second Life is a pretty, pretty, I mean, even though they're both sketch comedy, it's a pretty, as far as the creative process and the environment, from what I've read, it's drastically different than, than how it is in Kids in the Hall. I mean, these guys are all friends. They're all, like, you know, all the comedy comes from a place of joy, and they, they're all, like, they all love what they do. They're all great friends. You know, SNL is pretty cutthroat. You know, you're really struggling to get your, your work, to get your piece, you know, on air. Everyone's fighting for airtime. Yeah. And it could be, like, it could be, it could be, you know, it could be kind of a bummer. You know, yeah, and in the fact that uh, some people will write for you, you know, you specifically, and then you know, if if they don't like you or you're a newer guy, you have to fight like hell. But Kids in the Hall, it was all this big collaborative, like you go, you go, you go, we'll do this one together, that kind of thing. That's why I think they've held together is because they were a family. Yeah, I mean, and and also, you know, as uh, if, you know, the difference with SNL and that is like it's always been the same cast, Kids in the Hall. Yeah, it's, it's the only show I know of SNL where. Yeah, it's the only show. of cast members coming in and out, you know? Yeah, every single sketch show you can think of had a rotating cast. Even Mr. Show, yes, Bob and Dave were there for the whole thing, but almost everybody else came in and out for those four seasons. Well, I mean, kids had some, you know, there'd be, there's kids and old ladies and some other people. Right, but that's not the same thing. I'm talking, like, as a regular cast member. Yes, I mean, a Bellini is basically their sixth member. <laughs> Touch Bellini! Yeah, well, I... I mean, he, I mean, he's also a writer. Yeah. You know, I mean, even though, even though he's like, you know, he's seen as the guy in the towel. You know what I mean? At one point, at one point, he was part of the kids in the hall before they became like, you know, you know, uh, uh, TV stars. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I was looking here for the top ten characters from Kids in the Hall from Pace Magazine, a magazine I actually can kind of trust <laughs> instead of some stupid just random poll. <laughs> But um, it's funny is uh, they meet, they bring up AT and Love. They had so many around that company, and that reminded me of the way they would do the Mister Show with uh, Gleeman, not Gleeman X. That's from Brain Candy. What was the company that they owned in? That's from Brain Candy. Yeah, what's the company they always had? Uh, uh, well, uh, the company in the movie is called it's called uh, Rorator or something like that. No, no, no I was thinking of the company they always use in Mister Show. There was a we love you. It was Pit Pat. Uh, oh, forget it. Doesn't matter. We'll we'll discuss it in a couple of years with <laughs> the debut of Mr. Show. But the, there was a thing like the way they did with Mr. Or with uh, SCTV. It was centered around the TV station. This was a lot of the sketches right. were centered around this company, AT and Love. Right. Yeah. I mean. Uh, I mean. They try to keep like some kind of a 
cohesive theme at times when when necessary. But but you know, but it's it's you know it's also cool to have like like a lot of the one-off sketches that you will never ever see again. Right. Not everything has to be a reoccurring character. character I, yeah, the Eradicator or the uh, the two guys that are going through the office in a boat and they're collecting the suits as if they oh. were skins. <laughs> oh my God! There's so many classics. Girl drink drunk. Like, you know, <laughs> Do you remember the one what? where he grows a beard <laughs> and it takes over? It's yeah. like a parasite. He's like, Technology people, I fucked up. Hey, what were you saying? <laughs> oh no, but yeah, some of those great sketches, like yeah, like where he grows that beard after vacation, <laughs> he like refuses to let it go, and uh, he tells them like, no beard stay, you go. <laughs> They're just uh, me. The, uh, friends and I used to quote like uh, that the one sketch with the with the kebab where he keeps choking, and then uh, for the longest time I, I tell my friends like, I'll see you guys later. Right now I got a score to settle with the kebab. <laughs> just like that would be my like out my outro line. Yeah, I love the one oh, yeah. where he's trying to teach his dog to learn tricks, and the only trick is that he can keep changing time, and <laughs> he keeps getting older, more tired. He's like, hey, fifteen more minutes, you're out. <laughs> oh god, and, and the one who's like, he's like, my 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 pen, my pen. Oh you got my god, pen. yes, I do that yeah, at work all the he time. Tracks the my guy pen. Um, another one I love is when uh, Mark McKinney is like this weird dweeb and he's trying to kill a mouse and he actually and he does and he oh no what have I done oh poor mouse and it's just it's such a weird <laughs> noir dark mentally ill sketch uh, yeah that's something I uh, when, he, when, he, when he plays a little kid and, oh, well uh, Gavin yeah is that the one you're talking about Gavin. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, is exactly. With the, that is with uh, the backpack and the glasses. Yeah, my uh, my friend Andrew dresses up like him for Halloween. No way. Yeah, I'll show you a picture later. But yeah, he's uh, he loves to dress like him. Um, I also love the Sizzler sisters because they're completely demented, but they're always like, "We're not escape mental patients. Uh, we're clearly a couple of sisters," and they're trying to do a lounge act. It's just disturbing. <laughs> Uh, and of course, uh, what's it like? Like uh, Dave Foley's like monologues as uh, when he is like the, uh, the serial killer and he's the surgeon. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> some of the best. Yeah, he would walk off uh, out of the the sketch, or whatever, and uh, just walk right up to the camera and start doing one. I love the one where Bruce has to apologize for all the cancer he created. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's the older couple, uh, uh, Fran, and I can't remember the other character's name, but they're always like he's the put upon, or she's a put upon wife, and he's just a miserable husband. I think they have a son as like kind of a drug addict or a dope, and they're always giving him a bunch of shit. That ham was too salty, Fran. <laughs> <laughs> what was the one where it's oh, like, man, I wonder what Caesar is doing, and if he's thinking of me, and if, <laughs> if I'm thinking of him, and he's thinking of me. Uh, for some reason, this one always stuck with me. I it's like it, it's more he's he's going through divorce and his kids are at the table. He's like, "Let's see what's in the news." Oh yeah, <laughs> Belle de Devoe. <laughs> Every time I hear the word Belle de Devoe, uh-huh, uh-huh. I hear it in that cadence. Yep, you know what top I mean? of the charts. That's the only way I can hear it. I Belle worked with a guy Devoe. named Lopez. And I would always do that to him, and it would confound him because I never really explained. He had never seen kids in the hall. <laughs> Just Lopez. Hey, we gotta go to work, man. Come on, come on down. Lopez. <laughs> um, do you remember what is it, Hecubus and 
Sir Simon something, but they were like the, the dark arts kind of guys, and Hecubus was such a misfit oh, yeah. and uh, mischievous. I mean, like, and he would always fuck things up for Sir Simon. Cold turn the Iraq. Evil, evil. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Uh, of course, the chicken lady. There's the two that cops that were always like my favorite line from them of all time is, "Hey, yeah, uh, you ever heard of that new uh, toast fucking? The what? You know when you you, you fuck with toast." <laughs> <laughs> what were the characters where it was a really Mark McKinney played this really really tall shrill girl and Bruce McCullough played like the guy with the Napoleon complex and he's always trying to start a fight oh yeah oh god I, th- I, I, I think their characters were on um, were in Brain Candy too I can't remember what their characters were yeah oh yeah 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 I think they do show up for a moment or whatever when one's on the drug but um uh, we have the prostitutes that always showed up. They're always on the street doing little sketches, and the cops would come in and go with that one. Um, yeah. And then it started off as like a blues man where Mark McKinney is, in, and honestly, he's in blackface, but it's weird because he's not really making Yeah, I was just about to say that. It, yeah. He was in blackface, but that wasn't, that, that wasn't risque at the time. Yeah, it was, but, but, but I mean, it wasn't, but he actually admits, he goes, now what's a white Canadian kid doing talking like he's a blues man from the South? <laughs> so he, he pokes a hole at the whole thing in the first place. But then that ended up introducing um, Kathy, and then both Kathy's ended up being a big reoccurring character. Do you, do you remember them? They were working in the office, and, and, and she had the glasses, and I was just talking about people in the office. They worked for ATM. Oh, Life. okay. No, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No, totally, totally. Yeah, and my favorite of all time is uh, when he would do the flathead sketch. I think that's probably the most memorable one. Oh, the... the um, I crush your head, I flathead. The wheel, wheel. <laughs> That's what I thought you were saying. I was like, I was, I was like, talking about, talking about the, the crushing your head one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's probably his, his most famous character. That was that and the chicken lady. I mean, you know, yeah, probably. Yeah, the, the, it's weird that he had the most, I think, noteworthy. Well, now Buddy Cole was really popular with a particular audience. I think I've read somewhere that there was a attempted Buddy Cole movie that since he owned the rights to the character, he tried doing it for like a couple hundred thousand. It was done, but he hated it so uh-huh. much that it just it, it's out there somewhere. But it's not on in any home format whatsoever. Yeah, I just can't see that working. I mean, I, it's because I mean, basically, you know, you never see him like outside of that monologue. He's not really doing anything else. I really kind of find a hard finding a way to expand that universe. Yeah, well, that was the rule though that was going on in the '90s with anything that Lauren Michaels was attached to because he wanted to turn every property into a movie. And mind you, we saw yeah. what like eight of them during the run from Wayne's World to Ladies' Man. There was also a lot of attempted ones that just went nowhere, like the Hans and Franz movie and stuff like that, where they wrote the script, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, it, th- that, yeah, that would have been. Uh, you know what? I mean, I, that could have been any worse than like than Pat or. Um... Didn't Stuart Smalley have a movie as well? Yeah, like Stuart Saves His Family, which is actually not that bad, but it was the very last of that, that one run of SNL movies, so it barely got released. The only I've never seen it. I remember the trailer. I remember the commercial, and the one lady was like, uh, Stuart, that is just stinking thinking. <laughs> That's the only thing I remember from that movie. <laughs> the, uh, the movie that did come out after this, though, after they broke up, now Dave, by this point, was so entrenched in news radio that he wasn't really part of the writing, and he only showed up for like a week of filming uh, during a break in the show. Uh, but Brain Candy was yeah, he, supposed he, he, to... Go ahead. 
I was about to say he, he, didn't get, he didn't get writing credits in the movie because he kind of quit like, in the, the writing process. Yeah, not, yeah. not quit the movie, but he quit the writing process halfway through, so he didn't get writing credits. Like, yeah, for it's the whole uh, film. a Canadian production, but it was sold to Paramount, and they released it, I think, on 800 screens. This came out right at the same time as Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, also released like on 600 to 800 screens. Both movies bombed, and that was kind of the end of the franchise for a little bit. And um, I wanted to see it in theaters so bad, but we just didn't have it for more than a week. Did, were you able to see it? No, yeah, for that for the same reason. It was, it was not very long, you know. Yeah. And it's lost and now. Then, I mean, the DVD is like I mean, ninety dollars. Especially not, if you're like a kid, you, yeah. know, you, rely, you rely on the movie to be out for a little while because you're not going to see it first night. You're definitely not going to see it opening weekend because it's crowded. You don't have the kind of money. You kind of have to wait till it dies down. Maybe see an a matinee show sometime. You know what I mean? Midweek or something. But yeah, if it's like, you know, if it's if it's a if it's a bomb like that, and you feel like a, a young kid, you're not going to be able to see it. At least I at least I wasn't going to be able to. Yeah, it's I think it's incredibly funny. It's really layered, and uh, it 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 only taps into a few characters from the show. It creates all new characters, um, and it has a lot of commentary that it wants to say about this this unbelievable wave of. New prescriptions. Remember, every time you turned around watching TV, there was some new drug. It always ended in an X or started with a Z. You right. know, it was something like that. Yeah. And this pokes no, fun at it. And, and what can go horribly wrong by just shoving a drug out there that's not ready? No, yeah. And then, of course, I, we're all, we've all been like, we're all like, the, the running joke is like that long list of side effects. You know, we like, you know, it's fine print at the end of the commercial. <laughs> but that, that, that's, you know, that, that's what they're playing on. You know, there is no like, there is no, you know, there is no instant happiness bill. Like, no, but it's also about marketing. It, it pokes fun. It is their smartest piece, I think, that they've mm -hmm. ever done. And I wish it had been successful because they could have been the next Monty Python with their films. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying it was because of Cancer Boy, but that certainly did. <laughs> yeah, him, the, the studio you know, told him to cut that and ingratiate uh, themselves with the uh, with the execs. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is a lost film now. It is, like I said, the DVD is severely out of print. It's not streaming. It's not on Blu-ray. I don't know who currently owns the rights, but it is on YouTube for free if you want to check it out. It's a, a movie that I have memorized. <laughs> uh, I will quote on a regular basis. No, there was only a few, a few flipper babies. <laughs> it gives. Oh, um, damn it! It gives yeah, and, worms. And, 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 you know, also there, there's a lot of like uh, also on YouTube. There's a lot of um, the alternate um, endings and the deleted scenes, which typically you have to just have own the DVDs uh, yeah. to see. But the, 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 all the deleted scenes are on there. There's uh, the alternate ending. Okay, uh, I haven't seen even, the even alternates. Some, I've only even ever some seen of the, the trailers. Movie. So I've, I've seen some of the old trailers. Yeah. And then they had in the trailers they have characters that Dave Foley did, which were cut, that weren't in the movie, which is unusual yeah you know it just I, there's a different cut of this movie and, and the same curse with mystery science theater 3000 is that they shot the entire movie the studio execs didn't get it they said make it more mainstream and they had to reshoot the movie again only to get dumped yeah it's so weird because they chopped it down to an hour and a half and if they would have like kept some of like the other characters and some of the stuff that they put on the cutting floor it could have still been a tight two hours yeah but uh yeah i guess they just really just didn't like the direction it was heading yeah, I wonder if there's an alternate cut for Canada because Paramount's not the distributor distributor for uh, the Canadian uh, you know theaters. So I wonder if they have their own version of it that we get to see one day. Yeah, hopefully somebody could leak that on YouTube. That that'd, that'd be great. 
Um, so I mean, I guess technically you could make your own if you watch all the uh, if you find a way to like cut in all the deleted scenes and yeah, there's people who know how to do. I, guess, that. I don't know how to fucking. I guess do you that can now. make your own kind of yeah. Frankenstein version. The um, the reunion show I'm only a couple episodes into, but it looks like it started as if it was going to be a movie. It's like six episodes, and it's this murder mystery uh, in this small Canadian town. There's so many characters, but its flow and attitude is very similar to Brain Candy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to go look, look out for it on somewhere. Yeah. I guess on YouTube. I, I um, didn't think to look it up. Yeah, I, I thought I had a digital copy of it I was going to give to you, but i, I got to look for the code because uh, I have the set here. It, it has a code with it. You can watch it online. So I'll see okay. if I can get it to you. Hmm. Yeah, you, you know, it's crazy. Like, um, I, I mean, I've only, you know, I've only seen the show in the U.S., but, like, you know, the, C, the CBC aired... Every episode, like, they didn't have, like, the split, you know, like, the HBO to CBS, where, like, it's censored in CBS. Right. And uh, so they they aired every episode on CBC, and they like, like, normal primetime hours. <laughs> uh, Ken McDonald was in one interview saying, they they edited, they cut, they edited and um, censored our show more at 2 a.m. on Friday night on CBS, and they did it on the CBC at, like, 8 o'clock. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? On, on, on a Tuesday. Yeah. Like, it's weird. crazy. Um, so that is it. I, I, I say it's my personal favorite sketch show of all time. Uh, it's so sweet and weird. It has its own tone. It feels like um, you and your friends still horsing around. You don't know somebody's watching you have fun. Totally. Yeah, they, it, it's totally like a hang vibe kind of a show. It definitely feels like you're with five of your other friends just bullshit and right. around. Well, it's, that's it's why, like... The... That's why it was... For me, it was so much more relatable than, than that to know was. Right. Well, it yeah, also, also is the fact that... No, no guest host, no, yeah, no musical yeah. guest, no, you know. They're, the thing is, what? with a lot of these shows, is they're desperately trying to get you laugh. What's cool? What's hot? What's, 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 what can we make fun of? And Kids in the Hall is like, look, this makes us laugh. Do you want to laugh along with us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what's cool about... It, like, and they were citing some of their comedy influences. They're, these guys aren't too cool for school. They're not saying, like, George Carlin or Richard Pryor. It's like, it's like the Marx Brothers. That's who they're... Do you know where the Kids in the Hall name actually came from? No. I just learned this. Uh, so their name came from Sid Caesar, who, if a joke did not go over or played worse than expected, he would attribute it to the Kids in the Hall, quote, the Kids in the Hall, referring to a group of young writers hanging around the studio. Ah, so, I didn't know that. Bomb, That's great. Yeah, so it just seems like something bombed me. be like, ah, the Kids in the Hall. It was, it was those guys. Good to know. Okay, so that you know, is the like end a, of this. And, and, what? And, and, and Foley and Kevin McClellan, I guess, and such. I don't know what's happened, everybody. Tony just turned into a robot. Dear Lord, that was scary. Um, <laughs> no, you're cutting out really bad. I think that's my fault. Um, all right, so that is the end of this episode. Next one, we'll be discussing the 87 to 1990 run of SNL. Check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. And Tony, thank you very much. See, robot. He got taken over by a cyborg at the end of the show. I knew it. All right, good night. Hey, everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This section, we're going to this section. It's not called section. What am I talking about? Jacob, what am I talking about? What are we talking about in this episode? What's the segment, not section? I don't know what words mean. I'm new to this planet. We're talking about 
the sex uh, the segment of uh, 1987 films. Yes, it's the second Comedies round of 1987 films, and uh, we pick six every time. We'll hopefully try to pick six. Um, so Jacob will uh, just ring them off here, and I'll comment on them, and we caught, we just discuss them together. Well, this one, of course, was just an absolute classic. Even I watched this uh, when I was younger, and it is, for me personally, just a very charming film. Uh, Overboard with uh, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Saw this in the theaters. This is one of the few movies that my mother took us to without my dad. So me and my sister and her went to see it, and that's really the first time I really locked in on uh, Kurt Russell. I had seen... I want to say I had seen Big Trouble in Little China like right before it, and I only thought it was okay at the time I saw it, but then I saw it like a couple times more and I fell in love with it. But Overboard, I have seen this movie probably 60 times. Oh, wow. I dream uh, of having a mini golf course just like they created in that movie. Well, I've probably seen it five times less than that, but okay. But <laughs> seriously, again, that was pretty intense. Um, I mean, like as a kid, yeah, who else would want something like that? I mean, it was just so cool. Your imagination runs wild. But yeah, uh, again, the chemistry between the two, uh, again, is just always there. But there are times where it's like you really feel like uh, before this, you know, before the scenes where, um, you know, he's trying to work on the yacht and then she's like giving him shit because he's like snobby, like, you know, uh, right to be to getting married to a rich man. And you really think it's like, God, did they just get in a fight before this scene? I know. <laughs> they, they really... well, it does seem like they're working some shit out that they have in their real life in this movie. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And then in the end, it ended up working out for him. I mean, she ended up staying in love with him, even though uh, the whole time he was just uh, pretending to be married or, uh, you know, as payback for, you know, getting him fired for that little carpeting job. Yeah, That's it's it. kind of shitty what he does, especially you know, after, like, locking in on her as their replacement mother. But it's like when they start falling in love and he manipulates, he starts to feel like shit. That's the thing that they needed in this movie because if he kept going on that route, he was going to be a scumbag. Oh, absolutely. And then he actually does the, you know, he does, uh, he does like start falling for her. And then she actually, you know, really genuinely enjoys the kids. And, um, you know, she starts shaping things up, cleaning up. She was what they needed. Yeah. But it was better if she didn't remember who she was first. <laughs> but what she, <laughs> have you seen the remake oh, of this with Anna Faris? I, I have not. No, I have not yet. I've been meaning to. I do enjoy Anna Faris. And, uh, of course, Ava Longoria is in a supporting cast. Um, and I forget the main actor. Yeah, I can't remember either. I, He's in the No Strings Attached or something. Or No Instructions Included or something like that. He's uh, yes. uh, He, he oh. does stuff in America, but he has a lot of stuff over in Mexico, and those movies are really successful. This, that was his, like, his crossover. But what they did is they inverted it from being a, uh, a rich uh, lady for, to being kind of like a drunken playboy, rich you know, idiot. Absolutely, yeah. They kind of switched it around a bit. And it did play to both their strengths. I mean, I, I think he kind of picked up a little bit from his character in How to Be a Latin Lover. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. That's the other movie that he was in. Um. So with this one, it's the first time that I had seen Jared Rushton. Now, if you don't know that name, he is the best friend in Big and the big evil bully in uh, Pet Cemetery Two. I think isn't he little booby traps and got his uh, a little plastic arrow uh, super glued to his dad's head? That one, Russell, I think his name was. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that was him. That was definitely him. Yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, yeah the, the, he's the only one of the kids that I recognize. The rest of them are fine, but um. A lot of it is just it really sparring off each other. We have Roddy McDowell, of course, being absolutely phenomenal, one of my favorite actors of all time. 
uh, Edward Herman, I will never not see his face, rest in peace, saying, Tofuti, where are you, Tofuti? <laughs> oh, my Tofuti. <laughs> oh, gosh. Or that little, oh, that one scene in particular where um, she starts like we down the windows and it's a, she's using women, uh, a pair of women's underwear and uh, Kurt Russell had his friend cover up for him. <laughs> oh, right. And the lie just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And he's like, yeah, you used to date him. Don't you remember that? She's like, I dated him? Oh, yeah. You <laughs> you guys used to fool around. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> but, hey, I mean, she was pretty goddamn mean. So, yeah. hey. What she did, I can't that. believe that he built that gorgeous shoe rack. And she's like, you make it out of oak, not, uh, what did he make it out of? I can't remember. Cedar? I think he made it out of cedar. And uh, she goes, you, everybody knows that they're made out of oak. And he goes, you didn't ask for oak. <laughs> it's implied. I'm not paying you anything. And what he charged her was nothing. It was so ridiculous. It wasn't like $180 or something. And I'm like, what the fuck? Pay him, you idiot. I know. My God, to them, that's nothing. It was that's absolutely like nothing. Yeah, and I think that was kind of the point is that they're bazillionaires and it didn't matter anyway. Just do it. Just give him the money and fuck off. Exactly. So he could be on his way and support his kids. And, you know, of course, it was a very cute ending. Like, you know, she was actually really missing them even though she remembered who she was. And she just, again, just goes right on overboard. Hell right yeah. Under their boat. And they... Yeah, I can't remember the names that they yell out to each other, but that, that he tells that story about the lovers who, you know, drowned at sea, which is a morbid story, but they re, they yell that out to each other. Caster, Pollux, I don't remember what it was. Um, yeah, I really love this movie. This movie was a decent size hit, got terrible reviews, but uh, it is a favorite in this house. Oh, no, same here. Like, whenever it's on, like, my father and I, like, we end up just, like, uh, kind of watching it up, up pretty much until near the end. Unless it's, like, a, you know on a particular station where they broadcast commercials and it's like oh great another 10 minutes of commercials never mind yeah I have it in my voodoo thankfully so you can watch it whenever you want I got it for like 5 bucks Wunderbar Wunderbar next film okay next film this one was a very big surprise I'd never seen this before but I knew it was immediately based off Cyrano de Bergerac uh Roxanne god you've never seen this you love Steve Martin I can't believe you've never seen this yeah no it just I just never got around to seeing it for her odd reasons until now and my god there was just charm in every oh yeah i haven't seen it comedy i haven't seen it since it came out on video and i didn't really appreciate it then i adore it now it might be steve martin's best movie i'm not saying it's my favorite because that's bowfinger three amigos this might be his best film because (laughs) it's so lean and mean it never fucks around and he is on fire he should have gotten nominated for this because he's so good oh god yes absolutely (laughs) Again, just with the physical comedy, like him being, you know, the fire marshal uh, of that town and how he just goes out of his way to help everybody and get so involved with the community. Yeah, and And he can handle anything. He is, I mean, I hate using the word, but I guess he's a Mary Sue if you want to categorize him. He's good at everything, except he has a huge nose and everybody likes to make fun of him. But he also is so used to it, he rattles off those jokes in the bar so oh my fast, God, yes. and every single one of those jokes works. <laughs> I know. Seriously, again, that's where it's like kind of classic Steve Martin tends to kick in, but a little more subtle uh, and and grounded. Yeah, yeah but he's also biting. He is not a pushover. He can kick ass. He's a hell of a gymnast from the whole sequence where he's flipping up inside down in the house. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Daryl Hannah's very sweet in this movie, and the chemistry is fantastic. 
Um, I think the guy who's the dope is a dope. I really don't think he works because there's nothing about him that it feels like he wants her or that she wants him no matter what he's saying. They picked the wrong actor. I feel like someone must have dropped out at the last minute because Rick Rosevich is kind of a dud. Overall, I feel like that was the point. I mean, even when they had like the maybe, little... but it's just like they <laughs> they could have cast somebody different. I um, I love Shelley Duvall in this. She was fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to remember who directed oh God, this. Yeah. I want to say it was Fred Shapeshi. Let me look because I think Fred Shapeshi is also the one the next year that would do um, a fish called Wanda. Right. I'm trying to remember that actor's name from. Uh... Oh God, Bonnie and Clyde. He was one of the supporting actors. Oh, Michael he J. Was Pollard. Also Scrooge. That, yeah, he was in that as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, Fred Shapeshi. Let me look up what else he's directed. I'm sure he did. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm yabbering. No, no, no. Go, uh, of course. Um, it's all good. Let's see. Uh, yeah, again, he's uh, almost every role he's played in. Like has that has always just been like a sweetheart. It, you kind of notice that amongst the uh, the entire fire crew. Uh, except one of them, one was just an absolute perv trying to get in everyone's pants. Yeah, and I love how he gets teased and made fun of throughout of it, throughout the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, pretty much the fire crew are all just a bunch, uh, bunch of lovable bumbling idiots. It's like, yeah, no, they'll make mistakes, but it's like you can't help but love them. Wow, this is weird. Okay, so Fred Shapeshi, I'm looking at his filmography, and it is all over the place. I don't know if he was a gun for hire. Or he just liked to do movies that were just completely different than the last. He did Barbarossa, which is a western with Willie Nelson and Gary Busey. Iceman, which is a drama about a man who a caveman who's unfrozen in, in 1984 with Timothy Hutton. Uh, there's Roxanne. There's A Cry in the Dark, which is a... I think that's the movie where a dingo ate my baby with Meryl Streep. Uh, the Russia House with uh, Mer- Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Connery. Mr. Baseball, IQ... He did. He didn't do what Fish Call Wanda. He did Fierce Creatures, which was like the follow-up pseudo sequel to Fish Call Wanda. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I really enjoy this movie, and it's just so funny. Like his his fire crew is a mess, and watching him just try to he is basically holding the entire town together. Yeah, pretty much. Again, without him, it wouldn't really function. Nobody else wants to step up or you know help out as much. But yeah, no, he pulls through. He, oh my gosh, I loved, again, just that opening sequence uh, when he uh, beats the crap out of those rich drunk guys. Yeah, oh, and Kevin oh. Nealon's one of them. Yeah, that's, oh my gosh, I recognized him. I was like, wait a minute. That guy, well, yeah, that it's, it's before he wore the wig, so he does look different. Yeah, I figured that's what it was. I was like, yeah, his hairline seems a little somewhat off. What, um, um what was I going to say? I hate it when I forget what I'm going to say. Damn it. All right, never mind. Moving on. It's a good, it's an absolutely phenomenal movie, and I, I highly uh, suggest you check it out. Absolutely. It's a must. I have to I have to own it on physical copy now. I'll you do- know, um, Mill Creek just put it out on Blu-ray in a retro VHS cover. Sweet. Yeah, so you open it up, and it looks like a VHS tape, and you just slide it out. Nice. Awesome. I'm going to get, I'm gonna have to find it now. I'm getting that now. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll go shopping right after this. Right, no, do it right now while we're recording. Just <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. Go ahead. What's the next film? This one did kind of catch me off guard, and I thought it was definitely a little bit more wild. But uh, overall, I did, I did actually enjoy it. It was uh, Blind Date with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger. 
Yeah, it's oh it got God. terrible reviews. It was a big hit, but it's what got um, Joel Silver's attention uh, to cast him in Die Hard. So I thought it was an important film. And plus, it's one of the very, very few times Kim Basinger has been funny, just let loose to have fun. Yeah, no, I've never really seen Kim Basinger like this uh, animated. Well, except for Cool World. But, you know. Well, okay, <laughs> that's literally animated. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, no, yeah, of course, it's it's just, the date from hell, which it's just all all he does is misun <laughs> he misunderstands exactly what is going on when she's when he Phil Hartman tells him, oh yeah, don't give her anything to drink or she gets wild. Now remember, when he later he'll say, I told you, no, he was playing into that. He didn't really know, and when she drinks, she barely drinks. It's like Doc Brown kind of drink, you know, just like one sip, and she goes fucking insane and <laughs> sorry i'm just saying the last time. i mean she is she admits later on she's she has a chemical imbalance when she drinks which is why she's so batshit nuts and throughout the entire scene it's a bit of a you could say it's a bit of a uh, chase plot because john larrikett her ex-boyfriend obsessive and fucking nuts yeah that's the other thing is this, it's not kill bruce willis yeah it's not just uh, her drinking, it, John Larroquette is completely out of his mind and nothing's going to stop him from getting revenge on Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis is just being set up for a date. He's just trying to have a good time. And it's just, everything goes wrong. His job comes on the line, he goes to prison, his car blows up. It is the absolute night from hell and it's funny as fuck just watching him lose his shit. But you can see there's seeds of his performance here in Die Hard when he's so frustrated and panicked. Oh, God, yes. Um, oh, and then when he just finally snaps on when they attend that little dinner party. Yeah. And she's trying to be the normal one. <laughs> and then he gets a hold of the gun and he points it at John Larrikin and makes him dance. It's like, all right, now moonwalk. <laughs> I think that's shit. <laughs> uh, but, but when I saw him freaking out, I was like, I can see him now being like, oh... Does it sound like I'm ordering a fucking pizza? <laughs> I can see, like, oh, the director saw him freaking out on blind dates. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It never stops. It's really silly. You know, the sad part is, is it works so well in this movie, but uh, Blake Edwards would reteam with Bruce Willis the next year in a movie called Sunset, which I think is great, and it bombed horribly. Gosh, uh, do you have it on your voodoo? Yep, to I thought you were watching it. Someone's watching it on my voodoo, so huh. we'll Was see. It yeah, it's it's going to be the next year. It's a murder mystery um, in the 1920s where Wyatt Earp, old Wyatt Earp, played by James Garner, comes to visit cowboy actor Tom Mix on the set of a movie, and they team up to stop a murder mystery in Hollywood. It's great. I have to check it out, indeed, my friend. Yes, and uh, Blind Date is uh, pretty easy to find, and it's a lot of fun. Oh God, yeah, no, it's all—it's practically Looney Tunes fun. Yeah, especially. Oh God, that's another thing I want to mention. John Larroquette. Every time he bumbles, he always has to crash into a fucking store. Yeah, hate store, pet store. There's uh, (laughs) a there was another movie that she made that year, which is kind of wacky, and it's uh, an action adventure called Nadine. And I'm hoping to find that before we're done with 1987 because it's really good. Her and Jeff Bridges on an adventure that's comedic. I don't know what just happened, but cool. <laughs> that was a Chief and Chong reference from oh. Corsican Brothers. It's that oh. song he sang at the end. Oh, Corsican Brothers is so bad. Oh, my God. 
I loved it as a kid. You know, I was a kid. I had low standards. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, what is our next film? Okay, next film. Oh gosh, this I watched every summer, and I absolutely loved it. I can never remember the actors' names, but I recognize them immediately. Um, summer School. Oh God, what a wonderful movie! I saw this at the drive-in. And I was shocked that I was even allowed to watch it because there's that scene, the infamous scene, with uh, oh, lots and lots of gore. Um, and it's oh comedic, okay. but... Um, so go ahead and tell the story. If, if you haven't seen it, uh, Jacob, go ahead and describe the story. Okay, uh, well, of course, it happens... Uh... Oh, gosh, why am I blanking? Oh, Carl Reiner. Shoop. Oh, okay. Yeah, yes, Carl Reiner is supposed to teach the summer school, and he wins the lottery, and he says, "Fuck you guys, I quit," and they have to find someone immediately. Right. Yes. Pretty much. And so, like, he. De- I mean, he doesn't teach. It's not. He was no good at it. So he ends up taking it up because. Oh God, what's his name? The principal or the uh, administrator? I can't remember what his real name is. Like Robin Duke or something like that. That can't be right. But um, Robin Dunn. But um, he uh, he forces him. He says, you're up for tenure. I can cancel that uh, if you don't do the summer school. And he's ready to leave for the summer. He's going off. He, that's why he was a gym teacher, because it's an easy fucking job. Which is weird, because most of the gym teachers I remember um, always had to have a second job during the summer. They're always like mowing lawns and stuff like that. But he goes off um, you know, with Wonderbutt and his girlfriend, and he can't go. So she goes without him. And now he has to teach all the... Uh, the troubled kids for summer in English class. Yes. Oh gosh. Uh, Robin Thomas was the guy's name. Okay. Thank you. You know. Oh uh, gosh. There was a there was a great cast. Uh, of course, I remember uh, Dean Cameron's character's name, Chainsaw. That's that's the best way. I mean, he's unforgettable. Yeah, he's I used to actually talk to him quite a bit. Uh, we used to trade podcasting tips and other stuff. And uh, I started around 2000 talking to him. I haven't talked to him in a few years, and uh, he's a really nice guy. Oh, no. I, he definitely seems like it. Like, uh, with all the parts he plays, it's like, huh, he definitely seems genuine and down to earth. Yeah, he, he comes yeah, off maybe in on the a outside. lot of his roles as snarky, but I, I would say he's anything but. Right. Other than we got Courtney, uh, Courtney Thorne Smith. Yeah. Who oh we'll see in this year in Revenge of the Nerds 2. This is like her golden year. I think she was in something else that year too, but she's uh, uh, so likable. I think she's mostly known for being in Melrose Place or not. Mel- yeah, Melrose Place, right? I believe so, yeah. No, 90210 is a def- whole different cast. And, uh, anyway, um, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, the voice, I can't remember his name, Richard something, but he is the voice of Zim in Invasion, uh, Invader Zim. He's a little short guy, Egan. I think it was his... Yeah. Richard Steven Orbitz? Yes, thank you. He plays the voice of... I think he was in uh, Two Angry Beavers as well. No wonder he sounded so goddamn familiar. I watched that show so much uh, during that huge boom of Nickelodeon. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody from this went on to a lot of big things. Um, uh, Ken Olent became a producer, but he was in a TV show called Super Force for a few years that I watched like crazy. Uh, Shawnee Smith, who was in The Blob and on Becker for years. Um, trying to remember. There was... Uh, oh, damn it. I'm trying to remember. She was in a whole bunch of 80s movies at the time. Uh, Patrick Lebrado, he was on uh, JAG for a long time. 
Oh, Kelly Jo Minter. Thank you. Yeah, she was like the go-to cool smartass during this time because she was in Popcorn. I think she was in one of the Freddy movies. Um, the yes. People Under the Stairs. She was in a lot of horror movies. Oh, God, yeah, I know. Oh, God, and I think she's beautiful. I Absolutely. think she, yeah, oh, she's, she's gorgeous. Uh, I was friends with her for a little bit, too. She wished me happy birthday some time ago. It was nice. Oh, Michael. <laughs> that zebra outfit, though, like during her driving test. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh I think it's a, an absolutely wonderful movie, and everybody gets something to play with. No, and oh, we, let's not forget the love interest is Kirstie Alley, um, who was in um, Prince of Bel Air, not the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, the Prince of Bel Air, which was a TV movie the year before with Mark Harmon. Oh wow! Yeah, this was supposed to be Mark Harmon's big coming out, and this movie did very well. Um, but the next two or three movies just didn't make any money at all. And he went back to television. It, it was pretty... Uh, and he kind of bounced around for a long time until NCIS... Uh, that's weird. Jagged and NCIS. <laughs> we had two major cast members from this. Oh, yeah. I, I was about to say that. Uh, he came back up with Patrick... Labiorto? Labordeaux? It's French. It's hard I to think. pronounce. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. He, he, no, he reminds me of that uh, the stuntman. He, um, I keep forgetting his name, but he was in uh, the Conan movies. You know, you you know, you see a similarity. You know, big same facial structure. You know, piercing blue eyes. Oh yes, yes, I know exactly who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name. He's like, uh, that's his uh, dad? Sven, Sven Olthorsen. Sven Olthorsen. My name is Sven. Yeah, no, I was gonna say is that his dad? No, but I get that. I get <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of it is just it's so charming and Mark Harmon really carries this movie it is his show but you know it, it's hard not to say that uh, Dean Cameron almost steals this movie oh god he's a scene stealer in every scene just the, just when he's trying to get his driving test and he like passes the stop sign and crashes and then he yells at the freaking <laughs> then he yells at the uh, driving instructor like it's his fault <laughs> you dumb dingleberry oh, um I saw this in the th- at the drive-in with my parents, and uh, when it came out on video, we were at the video store. My grandparents, they were very apprehensive with watching any movies. My grandmother would turn off anything if it was stressful in any way whatsoever. And I wasn't 13 yet, and this was rated PG-13, and I convinced her to let me, and my uncle, my uncle's only a few months older than me, um, could let convince her to let us watch it. And I was like, well, my parents took us to see it in the theater. She's like, really? It says PG-13. You sure it's Okay. I'm like, ma'am, I, ma, Grandma, I've already seen it. Not letting her know in any way whatsoever about the gore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I got you away know, with that one. She, she is, didn't watch it with um, us at all. She didn't. She just let us go upstairs in the, the TV room and watch it. Uh, okay. Well, hey, I mean, you know, as long as it didn't freak her out, so yeah. she's fine. Well, this is the same oh, no, woman who got too nervous watching Big. So <laughs> summer school would not have flirted really? with her. Yeah. I, I don't understand what was going on with her. <laughs> I will say this. Uh, the actress, uh, the one who played Anna Maria. Uh, oh, my God. Fabiano Diano or something like that. I just mostly know her from um, Austin Powers as uh, Lada Vagina. <laughs> or, or no, or in that ad in Robocop 2 with the Sunblock 5000. Oh, is she in that? <laughs> okay. You know that, that was, movie way better that than her. I do. <laughs> yeah. But um, I just like how like she's like at first horrified and then she just falls in love with the prosthetics immediately. Yeah. Oh my god, this is amazing! I still <laughs> say to this day, Jismhead. <laughs> That's a good one, Jismhead. 
No, dude, it's a treat, and I still love it to this day. Yeah. It doesn't get old for me. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw is a very, 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 very good movie. 100 words. <laughs> I know. And I think, oh, God, Carl Reiner did, just such, a, yeah. did such a good job with this movie. Yeah, and he directed it. Uh, and, of course, like he said, he's the guy who quits in the beginning. Uh, the other part that I love so much is when they walk in on them watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they're like, what in the hell are you watching, Mr. Shoop? He goes, safety with power tools. <laughs> oh, my God, what a good movie. <laughs> Highly recommend oh, this one. Yeah. Um, another one I had on, VH- on VHS, my grandfather taped for us, and we would just watch till the tape broke down. Oh, wow. I don't blame you. <laughs> All right, what is our next movie? Okay, this, for me, it being uh, directed by Danny DeVito, oh, gosh. I absolutely love. How could you not love it? It's Danny right? DeVito. Well, it's also it's it's and, a new path in comedies. This is a really well-made, gorgeous-looking uh, dark comedy, and and Danny DeVito doesn't get any respect for it, but he kind of ushered in that era because there's so many of this. Danny Elfman, the the movies of Barry Sonnenfeld, the Coen Brothers, all of this is the seeds planted in Throw Mama from the Train. Oh God, yes, I know, and to think. Just Danny DeVito, the way, just the way he is, how he, you know, it's hard to say he really uh, pushed Billy Crystal to, like, you know, to give, like, one hell of a performance in this movie. Just the frustration level is amazing that he can, can, he kind of contains it, but he can't. And that's what's so funny about it. Absolutely, he does. He has no control. And even his friend later on, when he's being interviewed by the police to see if he actually killed, like, killed his wife, he's like, he couldn't have. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> he does yell a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, like when he's trying to discuss his ex-wife, or whenever he's brought up, he can't just help. He can't help but yell, "That bitch." <laughs> <laughs> the um, the biggest part of this though is Anne Ramsey. Yes, she came out, you know, oh, God, people's yeah. attention with Goonies, but this is a performance for, of a lifetime. <laughs> oh, just that face of hers that she makes, and just the way she speaks. Oh gosh, Ellen! She just Ellen, <laughs> you clumsy poops! When did you get that? <laughs> Ellen loves his mama. <laughs> Ellen doesn't have any friends. She's fat and he's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, she's so, she does not cut the days of you know any slack. I'm pretty sure that was part of the direction. It's like, don't cut me any slack. Yeah, you have a, a miserable pile of shit. <laughs> There's a lady right around the corner from where I work. And she is very much like her. She's just as... Oh. I, I think she's 9,000 years old. She's falling apart. Um, and she has two sons that are special needs. And she's fucking terrible to them. I literally was walking past her yesterday. As she says to her one son, Jack, she goes, Jack, get your ass over here, you slow son of a bitch. And I was like, wait, you just said he was a son of a bitch. You're his mother. You just called yourself a bitch. <laughs> what the fuck? I know. And not in a very positive, uplifting kind of sense. Not no. like Lizzo status. No, so, I was no. just... I don't know what that means. I'm so out of touch with everything in music. But it was just such a funny sequence, and I just kept thinking of Throw Mama from the Train. And here's my favorite part of Throw Mama from the Train. is the stupid class that he teaches on writing because his book was stolen, oh. and he can't write a second book. And 
the lady who's like, did we get him, Dave? Yeah, Dave, we got him again. Did we get him? Yeah. We really got them now, didn't we? Yes, we did, Dave. We really got them. It's just this endless circle. And it's fucking killing me. Oh, my God, I know. Or the guy who just describes women he wants to sleep with. <laughs> that was it. And then the other uh, story was just like kind of prattling on and didn't even have like a real like core subject. Or of the of her story is like what the hell? Yeah, there's an oh episode. <laughs> Do you remember? I got you to watch a cartoon called uh, Gary and Mike a couple years ago. I think so. It's where the two Pretty guys, cool. one is kind of crazy and wild, one's really uh, like tightly wound, and they go on a trip across the country. Yes. Oh, is that that claymation one? Yes. There is an episode. The season finale is a parody of not only Strangers on a Train but of Throw Mama from the Train, and. Gary isn't paying attention. The guy on the train is like, uh, I'll kill someone for you if you kill someone for me. Crisscross. Crisscross. And, and every time someone wants to do a bargain with me, I always think of crisscross. Crisscross. <coughs> I just love, like, near the end of this movie when uh, Billy Crystal falls off the train and then David Vila is just like, oh, okay. Bye, Owen. Bye, Larry. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that he, he, when he describes his book, and he's just like, oh, Mama, Owen, and their friend Larry, and he starts to lose his shit because that's the book that he's writing, and there's that sweet moment where he's like, oh, well, it's just a kid's book, so okay, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> then they end up doing, taking that little vacation at the end of day, and Vito's just in a snorkeling outfit. Oh, man. <laughs> It's so uh, fun. It's, it's so macabre, kind of and I love Danny DeVito's direction. And I such a bummer that uh, everything after this pretty much tanked. Oh really? Yeah, Death to Smoochie, Duplex, uh, Matilda did okay. Jack the Bear bombed. Oh no, 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 no! I forgot. Two years after this, he does War of the Roses, which you're gonna love if you haven't seen it yet. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely. I cannot is that with jack nicholson no that's the one where it's teaming up the crew from romancing stone so it's michael douglas and kathleen turner and they want to get divorced but they don't want to give up the house so they go to insane lengths to kick each other out of the house to make themselves miserable and danny devito is like their lawyer oh <laughs> all right i'll have to look into that then how nice how funny it just instead of like this crazy adventure it just comes right down to them just like yeah. Sadly, a domestic difference. Yep, and it's a really dark comedy, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, what oh, is our next film? Me. Next film, last but not least, this is an all-around perfect film. It's got everything in it. It's got comedy. It's got love. It's got sword fighting. It is The Princess Bride by William S. Morgenstern. <laughs> I didn't know you had a Peter Falk. Is there any impersonation you don't have in your back pocket you're going to surprise me with? That's the biggest question of the oh, day. Oh, shit. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I could do a pretty good goofy one. Yeah. Oh my God, Mickey! Would you oh, like a bowl of high damn soup? <laughs> That's my best goofy. <laughs> oh, yuck. Um. Yeah, <laughs> Princess Bride. I, this is another one that was on one of those VHS tapes my grandfather gave us. We watched a bazillion times uh, until one day I realized on our new television that the audio sucks. Uh, because it was taped in mono. So I hadn't seen it in a really long time. We went to a revival showing about five years ago, and it plays like gangbusters, and I loved it. 
And it's so insanely quotable. And I think everybody knows this. It's just one of the most quotable movies of the 80s. Oh, God, yes. It had a little bit of everything. Like, there was Inconspicuous, or Inconceivable. That's one. Inconceivable! Um, inconceivable! Wallace Shawn. Oh, God. You gotta love that guy. Great writer. Great comedic timing. And that voice is unforgettable. And, of course, Andre the Giant. Absolute sweetheart. Well, you like a prelude. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Fisic, are the rocks ahead? If they are, we'll all be dead. <laughs> God, you even have an Andre the Giant son of a bitch. Oh, I love it. And this also has Billy Crystal as Miracle Max. Yeah. That, oh, God, that was an unforgettable scene. To blaze. <laughs> to blaze. Get that out of here. I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. <laughs> oh, no, Carol Kane as his wife. Oh, jeez. Liar! He said true love. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what, what? You afraid to say humpity? Humpity, humpity. Oh, God. They bounce off each other so beautifully. It's, but, it's, I mean, yeah. Carrie Elwes. Carrie Elwes, just absolute, just suave. He had, I, I think he did pretty much almost all his own stunts. Like, he could actually do that. He was very fit. Yeah. Just, like, that whole sword fight scene. That's like, again, that has to be one of the best sword fighting scenes in all cinematic history, if not the best. I'm telling you right now, this movie is a 90% chance guarantee that a girl will say it's her favorite movie. I have met so many women that are like, oh yeah, my favorite movie is Princess Bride. I'm like, wow, this is so common. I can almost guess it every time, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, God. I'm going to have to rewatch it again after uh, uh, after this. That much is certain. Yeah, it's so <laughs> fun. It's just, it's the, the layers of the story is a kid sick, young Fred Savage. I think this is how we're introduced to him. Uh, told the story by his grandfather, played by Peter Falk. And just discovering their character through telling the story, you know, he's like, well, I'll tolerate the mushy stuff. You know, I was like, you sure about that kid? <laughs> and. Yeah, oh gosh. Um, I just thinking about all of them. How everything works well together, yes, and As You Wish is so quotable. And all the crazy adventures, the guy with the six fingers, uh, Ignigo Montoya, You Killed My Father, Prepare to Die, Climbing the Huge uh, Mountain, the what, what's the Rodents of Unusual Size? Stuff like that is so great. It is. It, 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 it takes a fantasy setting and it just blends everything beautifully. Um, oh, gosh. Chris Sarandon, oh, man, as uh, Prince Humperdinck. Of all the... What what a very very intimidating name for a villain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, but Mandy Patton can. Oh gosh, how can you not love him as an Eagle Montoya? Yeah, he just you know has one single plot. You know, get revenge for the man who killed his father for insulting his honor, and he crafted such a beautiful sword, a sword that I ended up ordering along with my Joker costume. No shit, that's cool. How much was yeah. that? And it was like twenty five bucks. I'm like, well. well Hey, cool. It's what I want. And, you know, that when my friends come over, I can just bust it out and be like, Hello, my name is Inigo Matoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Um, I also love to say, Mowage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I almost forgot about that. (laughs) Like, there's these little out-of-nowhere jokes that just manage to, like, kill you right then and there from laughter. (laughs) Have fun storming the castle. I see this all the time too. Oh no, my coworker Scott tells me that all the time too. Like um, when I'm leaving, I'm like, "All right, just give me a heads up when I need something to take care of." Uh, I'm gonna work on this in the meantime. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> he tells me to have fun storming the castle. Oh. So much fun. Yeah, it's it's absolutely all, all for all ages. I know that some kids are a little more pampered these days. Uh, I'm not making fun of them, but I, I feel like a lot of the uh, the the movies now that are sword and sorcery and fantasy, whatever, they're really tame. This has some stuff in it that's different. It's a little darker, um, and, and I deeply appreciate the movie. I really, really enjoy. Oh, absolutely. And if you have it on Blu-ray, the special features, like Terry Ellis had like his own little camera filming some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Diary. Yeah, and again, just hearing all the interviews and Manny Pattinson's uh, motivation for the scene when he finally killed Count Rugen, man, it hits hard. Yeah, it's a very, very good movie. And um, this is fun. Is this really all six movies already? Holy crap, we all just got... We did just get through Okay, so we... Discussed Roxanne, Blind Date, um, Throw Mama from the Train, uh, Overboard, Summer School, and Princess Bride. Wow, that's the fastest I think we've ever gone through our six films. So I think we only have about one uh, episode left of 1987 movies, and we're going to be exploring some stuff that Jacob probably has never seen. It's really hard to find. Um, I have found the widescreen cut of Extreme Prejudice with... um, Nick Nolte, directed by Walter Hill, and Powers Booth is a bad guy. It's the most badass, manly movie ever made. And it's only ever been in a, a transfer from a VHS on DVD, but I found the Japanese cut. And it's gorgeous. It's a modern-day oh, Western, oh, and wow. it's one of the best action movies ever made. And so few people have seen it because it bombed horribly when it came out. But um, there's so many more. There's uh, And Jacob's going to go through the list. He's going to choose the other five, but I definitely want you to see Extreme Prejudice. But uh, 87, one more round, buddy. Yes. Well, that's one more round than what I... Uh, oh, forget it. I can't even come up with a clever joke for it. I got my second vaccine shot today. That's oh, you're going to be it's gonna be <laughs> kicking in later today, man. At least you, you got the double shot. I got the single shot of Johnson Johnson, which I think hits a little bit harder. But seriously, guys, go get it. Mm. Don't be a fuck around jackass. Uh, there's a reason why smallpox and all these other diseases from 100 years ago are pretty much died off or non-existent because people got their fucking vaccine, okay? That's how this works. That's how herd immunity works. Yes, that's how a society functions, you fucking pricks. If you're not a fucking prick and you're getting it, And cool. it's free. We love you. Yes, go get it. Um, that is it. Check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. And Jacob, send us out. All right. Namaste and good luck, my friends. Oh, and everybody, I want to apologize. The last handful of episodes were rough audio. My phone was all fucked up. I got a new phone. We're back to normal. Thank you very much for being patient. I'm sorry about the rough sound. Woo! Yay!